We've established through this series, and in some respects it's a, bit of, it's a bit disjointed, it would be good for us to have considered uh, the 13th, uh, the evening service there, and the evening service tonight prior to this morning's message. That would help us, I think, to some degree, because we are looking at the shepherds of Israel, which I think prepares us to understand Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, a little bit better, but because of the way that it's laid out here and just with the schedule, we kind of have to go backwards. But that allows those of you who come Sunday night for the drippings to uh, gain further insight and to understand better. I think what we discussed today in Jesus as the Good Shepherd, let me bring you back to two weeks ago and we were last here to discuss this issue. We remember there that God created sheep. Sheep did not evolve into becoming needy and vulnerable creatures, but God created them, that, created them that way from the beginning. They were intended to be an animal that needed tremendous care and attention, an animal that would follow, an animal that would easily uh, scatter, an animal that needed a shepherd. God ordained then that his people were a pastoral people. Think of the individuals that you could name that you know in the Old Testament who were shepherds. We've come up and discussed a couple of them. We've come up with Abel, Genesis chapter 4, as a shepherd there offering that unique sacrifice to God that brought him pleasure. We have then as God chooses Abraham in the Old Testament. He is a shepherd and his wealth is determined by the number of sheep that he owns. And then Isaac and even Rebekah, his wife, are shepherds. And Jacob is a shepherd. And there are chapter upon chapter, there's chapter upon chapter in the Old Testament that describes Jacob's work as a shepherd. Then the twelve sons of Jacob all come as a shepherd people to Egypt, where they are distinguished from the Egyptians who despise shepherds, despise this, uh, this occupation, But God's people, as a nation, a nation of shepherds, land there in Egypt, in the region of Goshen, to carry on this work. I remember we talked about those who are critical of the Old Testament text that say really what's going on here is this is a pastoral people trying to show themselves to be better than the farming people. And that's really all that's going on with Israel's people. And as they come into Canaan, it's just an excuse to slaughter the Canaanites. They're all farmers, we're shepherds, we slaughter the farmers. Uh, that is missing all of what God is doing in this, this whole scenario, this whole theme of shepherding. It's not a matter of pastoral versus farming. It's a matter of God teaching His people very visibly, very physically, what it means to have a shepherd. And that was our next uh, understanding, or, or another issue then that we discussed, was that God uses this motif of Himself, that He is the shepherd of His people. The Lord is my shepherd, says David in perhaps the most well-known psalm. God is seen as a shepherd, reveals himself as a shepherd throughout the Old Testament text. We look today at the Son, Jesus Christ, willingly, purposefully presenting himself before Israel as the good shepherd of the flock. But not only God's work among God's people pictured in this motif. That's not only the issue, that it's God's work among God's people, but this motif, this theme of shepherding, pictures the work of God's people among God's people. And that is what we looked at a couple of weeks ago on Sunday night, most specifically. Remember Moses, God calls him as a shepherd of Israel. In fact, he was a shepherd himself in the second 40 years of his life. 
going from a military general, from a man who's being schooled in Pharaoh's court, to one who is a shepherd in the desert. And remember what it is that God uses as the symbol in his hand to stand before Pharaoh and to say, my people Israel should be let go. It's not the sword that, with which Moses grew up, as he would have been in Pharaoh's court, and again, as, as tradition indicates, he was a military leader that led in victories in battle. And the, uh, the uh, history of the Jewish people keeps that idea alive, that this was in fact his experience. But that doesn't even get into the biblical text. Because though Moses was in Pharaoh's court and could have stood before Pharaoh with a sword, God makes Moses a shepherd, and for 40 years he nurtures him that way until he says to Moses, take your what? Not your sword. Take your shepherd's staff and go stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. It is not Moses who will lead a military victory over Egypt, a civil war of sorts or some type of rebellion within it is Moses the shepherd who will, in dependence upon God, lead his, Israel, lead his people out of uh, Egypt. And of course we know that it is God there who is the one who does the military work when it comes to that exodus. That leads us then to David, and perhaps we could turn to Psalm 78 just as we remind ourselves of the uh, path that we've traced throughout the Old Testament to this point as we continue to see this theme if you think of anyone who is the leader of Israel in the early books of Scripture, it is Abraham who is a shepherd, it is his sons, Isaac and Jacob, who are shepherds, and it is certainly Moses. And the shepherd theme plays very heavily in his account. But then as we move forward, we must consider as among the most important Old Testament figures, in fact, the one that the text of Scripture considers more than any other individual, and that is David. In Psalm 78, we hear this theme sounded again in connection with God's king, David, who now establishes the monarchy. Of course, it's established under Saul first before him, but David is God's choice to establish the monarchy and to stand between the people and God. Notice Psalm 78 and verse 70. It says, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. Psalm 78, verse 70. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. So God continues to sound this theme, not only about his relationship with Israel, but also about the leaders of Israel in their relationship to the people of Israel. So the monarchs of Israel are pictured as shepherds of the people of God, as are the prophets who will come and who have a ministry alongside of the monarch. And often that was a troublesome relationship. Sometimes it was a very beneficial relationship and a good relationship, but often it was a troubled one. As the prophets come to the kings and say, you must return to the word of God and to the law of God. But both of them had their unique responsibility to be a shepherd of God's people. The prophet to proclaim the truth and to call the people back to the covenant responsibilities and the king to represent God to the people in a unique way as their theocratic head. The monarch and the prophets are shepherds. Now, with that in mind, we turn, we come now 
out of the monarchy into the period of the prophets, that is the place in Scripture that considers the prophets. Again, they're working with the monarchy. But the prophets of Israel are also using this theme quite regularly as we trace them out. Let's turn, if you will, to Jeremiah. As we consider the work of Jeremiah, who more than any other prophet used the figure of the shepherd to describe the failure of Israel's kings and of Israel's false prophets. Jeremiah chapter 10, uh, Jeremiah here proclaims the word of the Lord to Israel and warns her that she will be disciplined by captivity for her idolatry. Jeremiah chapter 10, if you'll notice verse 17. There's a a major break here in the book of Jeremiah, or in in the discussion here of chapter 10. And he says there, Jeremiah 10, 17, notice what Jeremiah says. Gather up your belongings to leave the land, you who live under siege. For this is what the Lord says. At this time I will hurl out those who live in this land. I will bring disaster on them so that they may be captured. I think we're fairly aware of the situation that Jeremiah is facing. Let me just very briefly trace this out. Israel has violated the covenant with God. God says in response to this failure, he is going to send them into captivity. Now false prophet after false prophet arises and says, we're not going into captivity. God will come through in the end. Just hang on Israel. God will defend us. We will not be defeated by the Babylonians. Jeremiah lived that Horrible life, it would seem, in many respects, where he continued to go against the grain and continued to say, we're going into slavery. We're going into exile, rather. We will be taken captive by Babylon. They will defeat us. And, of course, he was hated because he was discouraging the people of God, was the thought. But Jeremiah continued to deliver this message. And so he says here, uh, uh, as he speaks for God, that Israel will be taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, epitomizing the depraved spiritual state of the nation, God levels the following charge against the leaders of Israel. Verse 21. Verse 21 of Jeremiah 10, The shepherds are senseless and do not inquire of the Lord, so they do not prosper and all their flock is scattered. These kings and these false prophets who do not heed the word of God are pictured here as shepherds who are failing their stewardship before the Lord. Jeremiah calls, of course, for repentance throughout the book. And what is going to happen to Israel If she continues to run from the chief shepherd, Jeremiah 13 and verse 17. Jeremiah 13 and verse 17. Notice how he uses this theme again. 13, 17, but if you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears, because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. Say to the king and to the queen mother, Come down from your thrones, for your glorious crowns will fall from your heads. The cities in the Negev will be shut up, and there will be no one to open them. All Judah will be carried into exile, carried completely away. Lift up your eyes and see those who are coming from the north. Where is the flock that was entrusted to you, the sheep of which you boasted? 
Again, picturing the leaders of Israel as the sheep who have failed their stewardship. Israel is guilty before God, Jeremiah claims. But as Jeremiah weeps over the sins of the nation, he aims his prophetic guns most directly at the spiritual shepherds. All of Israel has failed. But it's the leaders of Israel who are particularly pointed out here and condemned. Verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 1. Jeremiah 23. Notice again how he speaks in words of condemnation from God to the leaders of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. To this point in the book, a number of individual kings have been addressed, but this particular warning serves more generally as an announcement to all of Israel's shepherds. As we notice there in verse 1, it says, Woe to the shepherds. Now that doesn't mean stop your horse. <laughs> that means condemnation. It's a heavy word. Woe to the shepherds of Israel. It is a typical Old Testament interjection which serves to arrest attention before a pronouncement of doom. Woe to you shepherds who are destroying and scattering the flock. This is characteristic of their failure as, as moral shepherds. They are destroying and scattering the flock. Notice verse 2. Therefore, here's the conclusion then that God draws. Now there's a play on words here that is very interesting, right toward, toward the middle of verse 2. It says, because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you. Our translation here misses that idea, but what God is saying here essentially is since you did not take care of the sheep that were put under your care, I am going to take care of you to put it in English in, in, the, in the phrase that he's use, using. You did not take care of them, I will take care of you. And of course he's speaking here of divine judgment. There would be exile into foreign countries. But the prophecy does not end there. After God judges Israel and her shepherds, he will take up his shepherd's staff and visit his people for good. Verse 3. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. One of the most frequent criticisms I hear of the Bible is that there's two gods. The Old Testament God is a vindictive, harsh, mean, ugly God. And that just goes without discussion in so much of the secular discussion about the Bible. There's this mean, ugly God in the Old Testament. Well, there's a lot of ways of answering that. I don't want to get lost here. But this is how any parent deals with his children. There is a certain severity in the early ages that need to, need to be sent. There is a message that needs to be sent that I'm in control here and you're not. That's harsh. That's mean-spirited, some would say. But in fact, I think that's very loving. To say this is where the control in the center of the home is going to be based as far as that is concerned. As time passes, more, less and less of that message needs to be sent. 
Now, as God operates something in the same way throughout the Bible, there is a harsh tone in the Old Testament where God does indicate that He is a God of judgment and wrath and anger, and He establishes that point. But the people who say that's the God of the Old Testament aren't reading the Old Testament. I, I would venture to say we just read verses 3 and 4, and nobody here took a second look and said, wow, I can't believe the Bible says that. You know as Bible readers that over and over again where the condemnations of the Old Testament end are with the blessings that will come after the discipline. God time after time after time says, I will discipline, I will send you into captivity, and after you are there, I'll bring you back. I will restore my people. I will draw you back to myself. Remember, Israel had come to the moral state where they were sacrificing their children on altars to other gods. They so loved the other gods that they were willing to take their own children and to burn them to death. And to those very people, God says, I will love you again and I will bring you back. That's a whole lot more love than is in my heart. God in His love in the Old Testament continues to draw His people back no matter how depraved they become. He loves them with an everlasting love, and that's in the Old Testament. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, I will gather the remnant. He's saying, I'm going to gather back the people that I've sent into captivity because of their sin. I'll gather them out of all the countries where I've driven them. I'll bring them back to their pasture. They'll be fruitful, they will increase, and I will place shepherds over them who will tend them. Chapter 25 of Jeremiah, we find then this warning toward the end, more toward the uh, end of his prophecy. I will tend my sheep, says God. We find then this warning again, chapter 25 and verse 34. Weep. 25-34, weep and wail, you shepherds. Roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock, for your time to be slaughtered has come. You will fall and be scattered like fine pottery. The shepherds will have nowhere to flee. The leaders of the flock, no place to escape. Hear the cry of the shepherds the wailing of the leaders of the flock, for the Lord is destroying their pasture. The peaceful meadows will be laid waste because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he will leave his lair, and their land will become desolate because of the sword of the oppressor and because of the Lord's fierce anger. We see the theme again of warning of the shepherds of Israel and of the scattering of the flock of God. Chapter 50 and verse 6, then as we draw to the end of Jeremiah. The theme just continues throughout. Jeremiah 50 and verse 6. Jeremiah 50, verse 6. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. God pictures His people as sheep, and He pictures the leaders of Israel as shepherds. Let's come then from Jeremiah to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. If you'd find that, let me then just make a few comments, and then I'll largely just read 
this chapter to you as we consider this theme here in Ezekiel 34. What side is Jeremiah on the, of the captivity? Is he on the front side or the back side? If we've just been listening at all, you know he's on the front side. He's saying, you will be taken into captivity, right? You will be uh, punished by God in this way. Where's Ezekiel? Ezekiel's on the other side of captivity. He's ministering not in Israel, saying you must turn back to the Lord, but Ezekiel is ministering in captivity in Babylon. He's on the other side of the equation. Same theme continues to arise here. Ezekiel's taken in an earlier phase of the captivity, and God reveals to Ezekiel, there is a man who is going to come to you and is going to say, Jerusalem has been captured. Now the people in Babylon were saying, now that's never going to happen. God has destroyed us or sent us into captivity, but he'll never destroy Jerusalem. He'll never destroy his city. That was now the false prophecy that was going around. Israel just never gave up on this. While they were in the land and about to fall, they kept saying, we're not going to fall. Once most of them had been taken captive and the only thing really left was the citadel of Jerusalem, they kept saying, Jerusalem won't fall. The prophets of God, who were the two pro true prophets, continued to say you're being disciplined and Jerusalem will fall. So Ezekiel, get this right. All of these people that are pressuring you to prophesy that I'm going to protect Jerusalem, I will not. In fact, there will be a man who will come in a certain period of time and he will come to you and say Jerusalem has fallen. And that day comes. Chapter 33 and verse 21. Let's go back there and we just, I'll just read this. 33, 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has fallen. The day before this messenger arrived, God opened Ezekiel's mouth. He had been unable to speak for some time to the people of Israel. God says, now I have a message for you, and he delivers these various messages the day before this man arrives. Messages of hope. God knows this man has escaped from Jerusalem. He's just about to deliver the message that the great citadel is fallen and Israel's gone. But God then sends Ezekiel a message and says, Proclaim to your people a message of hope because tomorrow there's going to be really bad news. The city has fallen. And so Ezekiel begins, uh, is, is announcing here the hope that there is for God's people. One of those messages of hope we find in chapter 34. It is a message of condemnation against the shepherds of Israel, followed by a message of hope that God would shepherd his flock in the future. I won't take time to labor over any of this. I just want to read it. But let's think again of the prominence of this theme and how God uses it as he speaks to his people. First of all, God charges Israel's shepherds with neglect. Verse 1 of 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not care 
of the flock. Do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. This is the charge. Israel's shepherds have been neglectful. Secondly, now, God issues His verdict against Israel in a way that was very common in that time. He sort of summarizes the charge and then gives the verdict. Verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered, and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, there's the summary, Therefore, verse 9, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. So the review of the charge, verses 7 and 8, the verdict, verses 9 and 10, they will be removed from their charge. Now at verse 11, God promises to lead His people as their shepherd. You have done wrong. You will be removed. But I will come in and shepherd my people, God says. Verse 11. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. In other words, I will do what you failed to do. Verse 12, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are, were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land." There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. In other words, those shepherds that were fattened on abusing the people of Israel would be destroyed, but God Himself would shepherd His people. He promises to lead His people as shepherd. Verses 11-16, through 16, He will rescue and He will nurture them. Now at verse 17, we find that He will render selfless, honest judgment. Verse 17, As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? This is how the selfish Shepherds abused Israel. But now God speaks, verse 20. 
Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. We saw that, didn't we, today in John chapter 9. That's what we found there that the leaders of Israel did to that man who was born blind. They put their horns down and they shoved him out of the way. I will save, verse 22, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. So the false shepherds of Israel had rendered false judgment and poor judgment. But God would come in and take over as shepherd and would render faithful judgment. He would would judge with righteous judgment. Thirdly, he will set a faithful under-shepherd over them. Verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. If you hear the sound of screeching brakes, <laughs> that's what, wait, where did David come from here? Wait a minute. Is David alive or dead? I'm going to set David, my shepherd, over them. David's long gone. He's been dead for many, many years. So what in the world is going on here? I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. This is a Hebrew way of thinking that sees the son of David as David himself. And this, of course, is that great theme of David's son, Messiah. That one shepherd who will come and will reign over the flock of God forever. He will be the prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now notice what takes place, which... Uh, parallels this idea. He will give them, his people, covenantal protection, verse 25. And it's connected directly to his seating Messiah over them, David's son, Jesus Christ, of course, as we understand now, as further revelation indicates. But verse 25, I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forest in safety. I will bless them and the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I, the Lord, They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign sovereign Lord. Who's preaching this message? This is a Jew in captivity who is just about to learn that the last city standing in his land was just destroyed. And he stands up and says, we're going back to the land. 
God promised us that land. This isn't about us. This is about his promise. We're going back to that land. There's going to be a ruler over that land. And God is once again going to restore blessing. You see, the whole movement of Israel was against what God was doing. Before the captivity, it was, we're not going into captivity. And in the captivity, it was, we're never going to be returned. But the prophets of Israel went in exactly the opposite direction. You're going into captivity, pack your bags, God's already decided, Babylon will conquer. But now I'm going to lay out a prophecy that no one in their wildest dreams could ever expect to come true. We're going back there. We're going to go back there as a nation. Our shepherd is going to call us from all of the nations into which we have been scattered and is going to bring us back and he will shepherd our nation. And of course, as further revelation indicates, this shepherd is Jesus Christ who will rule over his people from Jerusalem at a time yet future to our own. Now we could go on and on. Let me just read without comment, from the book of Zechariah, as the prophets continue this very same theme. Jeremiah's not saying anything different than Ezekiel, just from a different historical perspective. Zechariah chapter 10, toward the end of the Old Testament, right at the end there, uh, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 2. Notice the same theme that God continues to send to His prophets. Zechariah chapter 10, and verse 2, the idols speak deceit, diviners see visions that lie, they tell dreams that are false, they give comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. I will punish these shepherds, says the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 15. 11, 15. Then the Lord said to me, Zechariah 11, 15. The Lord said to me, Take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hoofs. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blinded. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. The theme just continues. Very similar theology, very similar message. God is the shepherd of Israel. The under-shepherds are considered in their failure, yet God promises a coming shepherd who will rule his people with justice, with righteousness, and with the blessings of God coming down once again upon God's people, even in the land that God promised to Abraham. Now my goal in these two Sunday evening sermons was to simply demonstrate that the shepherding theme is predominant in the Old Testament. It is predominant physically, it is predominant figuratively, and this theme is one that God plays, as it were, musically, throughout the entire Old Testament. We've looked at Abel and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchal heads of the twelve tribes of Israel and Moses and David, literal shepherds. But as the text of Scripture unfolds, 
as it continues to work its way toward our understanding of Messiah, this theme of shepherd continues to become more and more figurative, more and more emphasizing the spiritual responsibility of Israel's shepherds. So Genesis, we find, is filled with sheep and shepherds. The monarchy and the prophets, then, as we move there, we begin to see the theme used of their watch care over Israel. And I think we learn, certainly, we must take home from this quick survey in just these two Sunday nights that leadership of God's people is a heavy responsibility. God holds accountable His shepherds. God is very concerned that those in spiritual leadership prove lovingly faithful to the flock and not use the flock for personal advantage. Later in this series, by God's grace, I'd like to apply that to all of us. It certainly applies to those who are in particular leadership, but it applies to every last one of us. Those of you who in any way are teachers of God's Word are shepherds. Those of you who are involved in discipleship in any sense of the term are shepherds. Those of you who would lead a home group, those of you who are husbands and fathers within your home, mothers as you give guidance to your children, even the young people that are here, those young people who are younger than you are in a sense looking to you as a spiritual shepherd. We have that responsibility within our assembly and we need to take very carefully God's warning that He holds His shepherds accountable. When we have spiritual influence over someone else, when we have particularly, if it is leadership or authoritative influence in any shape or form, we have an accountability there. And we need to know that God is very concerned that we follow through on that accountability. One of the reasons this is such a problem within our culture and time is that we are taught at every turn to think only of ourselves. This is perhaps the most self-oriented generation and culture that has ever existed on planet Earth. It's all about me. So much of time past and history past has been all about feeding those around you and yourself. It's been about survival. But we have come in these modern times to, to, to it being about us and about what we want to get out of life. We need to think in a very different perspective if we are going to be God's people. It is about the sheep that we lead. And I don't care if you're a seven-year-old here in this auditorium, there are people that look up to you. And there are people that you can have spiritual influence over and do have spiritual influence over. We need to follow through and realize we don't live unto ourselves. There are people that we need to bring along with our influence spiritually and God cares about what we're doing. And certainly, if nothing else, we have provided a sol more solid base of understanding what Jesus meant when He said He is the Good Shepherd. As the Old Testament closes, God's people are desperate for a spiritual shepherd. We've seen that, haven't we, in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah tonight, in Zechariah. I hold the shepherds accountable. They're trampling over my people. In fact, as Jeremiah said, they're eating my people. They're the shepherds there to protect the flock, and they're eating the flock. It is no accident that the New Testament starts with a genealogy of the son of David, the great shepherd of God's people. As prophesied in the Old Testament, David's greater son would someday shepherd God's flock, as we've seen here, this one who would come and return to the land and rule over it. The Old Testament closes then with immoral, unfaithful spiritual shepherds 
and then there's 400 years of revelatory silence. And we come from that place to a genealogy of the son of David. In Christ, we come to experience what Psalm 23 means. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. As God prepared his people over the centuries to understand the substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death of Jesus Christ by erecting this elaborate sacrificial system, so God develops the motif of the shepherd in the Old Testament in order that we might be prepared to receive Jesus Christ, the son of David, the shepherd of Bethlehem. That leads us to John 10 doesn't it? I am the good shepherd. We follow this prophesied shepherd. We hear his voice. What does that mean? It means that we hear his call to salvation and we follow him out of death and into life. He is our great shepherd. Father, we thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you for the encouragement of considering today who Jesus Christ is and how we relate to Him. How thankful we are that we are in Your flock, those of us who know You as personal Savior, who have come to embrace You as our soul shepherd. We thank You that we